Okay, by way of announcements, we have our men's prayer breakfast coming up Saturday morning, and that's been very well attended recently, so we look forward to that. We also have our deacons meeting just following the morning prayer breakfast, and prayer breakfast is at 7.30, deacons meeting at 9 o'clock. Then uh, we have two things coming up. On the 14th of October, there'll be the memorial service for Sally Davis at 11 o'clock, and then on, I think it's the 20th, 21st, is that right? We have the men's uh, camp out Friday night. Is that okay? I think that is all, all of the announcements. Jeff has all the people he needs for his trip to Brazil. Trying to think. Oh, if you plan to go on the Museum of the Bible trip, if you have registered with the hotel, the Hilton Garden Inn. If you've registered with them, then you need to get a confirmation number and email that to Dean Bible Ministries. Okay, most people have, a couple of people we don't have, including the pastor, okay, don't have his confirmation number, but we have uh, uh, everybody else. So I think with one or two exceptions, we don't have those confirmation numbers. So we need to get those those in. And I think that's about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give each of you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. We are to walk by the Spirit, Scripture says. The opposite is to walk according to the sin nature. It's one or the other. It can't be both. We either walk according to the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, or we let the sin nature control. When we sin, the way to recover is through cleansing. And the clarity of 1 John 1, 9 is that if we admit or acknowledge our sin to him, we are instantly uh, forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer uh, before uh, I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed very grateful for your grace, your goodness, your provision for us. We continue to pray for people in this congregation, just people in this city who are facing just a a massive task of cleanup. Here it has been almost a month since we were hit by the storm, four weeks, and there are many people who are who are still weeks away from being in their homes and 
uh, maybe months away from getting everything back to normal. And Father, we pray for them, pray for those in this congregation who are facing um, this uh, mountainous cha uh, challenges, and we pray that you would strengthen us to minister to them and that they might uh, look at this opportunity as a time for spiritual growth and witnessing to others. Father, we pray for each one of us as we study your word that we might be focused tonight, that we might think through some important issues related to understanding what Christ did on the cross, that we might come to understand it uh, clearly and accurately, that we might better understand what we read in the scripture and what you have done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter 3.18. And I know some people may think that, well, we're just going to go through some of these verses and just stay there for months and months and months. But there's some really important stuff in 1 Peter 3.18. This is a critical verse for understanding the topic that I started last week, the, what the Bible teaches about substitutionary atonement. And if you notice on the title slide, I've underlined the word atonement because last week we looked at the concept of substitution. And tonight what we're going to do is begin to think our way through this concept of atonement. And this is important. How many times is the word atonement used in the New Testament? It's not used at all in the New Testament. Not one time. It's used in the Old Testament. And actually, the, it's an English word that's sort of a made-up word. So that's one of the issues that we have to get into and in, in thinking through. What, what does that mean? What it, how does it uh, relate to things? And it's a term that has uh, come into English theological language as a word that just summarizes basically what Christ did on the cross, the totality of his work on the cross. And tonight I'm going to spend a good bit of time talking about wrong views of the atonement. And one of the th reasons that we do that is because I find that maybe not as much with this doctrine, but with, with certainly with other concepts, that when you begin to go through church history and look at some of the other views that have been set forth, uh, you th realize that maybe some of those ideas have crept into our thinking. And we're going to look at one tonight that is, uh, I remember as a kid, hearing something about it or having a question related to that or something and it was just a point of, of confusion so even kids come up here hear these ideas and come up with them and then that we're going to look at a couple of others that have been just absolutely foundational to understanding the errors and flaws in American evangelicalism and uh, in a lot of American Protestantism, and people just are, are unaware of it because the language they use if they're preaching is pretty much the same language I would use, but they don't mean the same thing. It's sort of a bait and switch in some ways. So we're in 1 Peter 3.18. The verse reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Almost every phrase there is just loaded with so much to investigate and to think through. It's just incredible. Last time, 
I pointed out that the word once is important because Jesus isn't going an ongoing sacrifice. That's the idea that you have in Roman Catholic theology is that Jesus is re-crucified in the mass. This is why it was so uh, critical. Uh, are they turning the, the, the bread and the wine into the body and the blood of Jesus? That's why that whole issue of transubstantiation was so important. And if you lived in England... In the 1500s, after the time of Henry VIII when he had died and he is succeeded by his son uh, Edward, who was a Protestant, and then he only lasted a, couple, uh, a few years. He died young, and then he in turn was succeeded by his Roman Catholic sister Mary, who's known in history as Bloody Mary, not because she invented an alcoholic drink, but because she immolated so many Protestants on the uh, pyres in England as they, they burned them al alive. And so the issue that everyone debated, everybody understood on the street, the homeless people could debate what the meaning of the Mass was. Is that really Jesus? Is he re-crucified or not? I mean, they would argue on the street corners about that. And if you didn't have the right answer, depending on who the king or queen was, then you could go to jail and be burned at the stake. So it was a life and death matter. And today we have people who have been in church all their life and can't think their way through these issues anymore, which is a sad commentary on, on where we are. So that should not be a problem for us at this church. Jesus died for sins. I pointed out this is a... Uh, different preposition than what we find normally for um, substitution, which is uh, either we, uh, and we'll point those out, either we find the preposition anti or huper, but this is peri, and it indicates more the idea he doesn't suffer in the place of sin, he suffers with reference to sin, okay? But the next phrase, the just for the unjust, brings in that preposition huper, which is a preposition of substitution, one in place of another. And so we spent most of last time talking about uh, these two prepositions and their significance for substitutionary atonement. I pointed out that huper, excuse me, peri, is uh, the, from, the let, uh, from the Septuagint, it's typically used in all these passages that talk about atonement. That, that Hebrew prepositions are not as precise, and sometimes there's not even a preposition there, but it's translated consistently by the rabbis with this preposition. So Peter's writing to who? Gentiles or Jews? Jewish background believers. Okay, and so they they would know the Septuagint, they would know the Torah, and they would understand the significance. By the way, Shana Tova. All right, are you up to date? That's Happy New, Happy New Year in Hebrew because last night at uh, sundown we, we celebrated Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year. And so this is the beginning of the High Holy Days uh, for, the, for, for the Jews. And it ends with Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement in 10 days, 
and that is when they, they, they can't sacrifice, they can't go through that. We're going to talk about that sometime in this series. I don't know how far I'll get tonight, and then we're going to have a brief hiatus for two weeks. I will be gone, but I will be here virtually. We started a series yesterday, came down here and videotaped two lessons on Psalm 19, and so you don't want to miss that. Dovetails perfectly with what we're studying on Tuesday nights in Psalm 18. And then I didn't quite finish it in two lessons like I had hoped, so that will be three lessons. I'll have to finish it uh, when I get back, and then we'll come back to, to the atonement. But atonement fits into that as well, so all of these things are intersecting, so one thing with another. But what we see is the sin offerings, uh, this word, uh, perihamertion, was what was used in reference to the sin offerings. And so those sacrifices were understood that way. For example, Leviticus 5, 6, he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin. That would have been translated uh, perihamertion. And and also uh, concerning his sin down at the end of, of that verse. So this is important. And the word make atonement is used here. This is the Hebrew word kafar, which typically historically for many years has been understood to mean to cover and oh but that preaches well when you talk about the uh the the mercy seat and putting the blood on the mercy seat and it covers sin but what we've discovered is that that may not be the meaning of this word kafar in this context that there's a, what's called a homophone a word that's spelled the same looks the same sounds the same but it is it has a totally different root in meaning and that's the one that was used to translate in Genesis 6 that Noah covered the ark with pitch. Same, looks like the same word, but most lexicographers today believe they're two totally distinct words, totally different semantic value. And I think that you can demonstrate that from the way this, the Septuagint translates it. More the idea of cleansing, forgiving, purging, wiping clean, very much fits the picture that we have in the Day of Atonement of sin being forgiven, and we'll get to that as well. So these are the key words that we find in these verses I looked at last time, introducing this concept of making atonement. So we started off with what the Bible teaches about substitutionary atonement. We looked first at the concept of substitution, that in theology this means that Jesus took the place of the sinner. It's called penal substitution. That's another key phrase. It is a penalty on the cross. He takes our punishment for us. Very important idea. And then I worked through uh, nine different subpoints, A through I. E is a central one where the Old Testament illustrates this through a series of sacrifices which are substitutionary in nature. And the picture in Leviticus 1.4 on the screen is that uh, the person bringing the sacrifice places his hand on the head of the sacrifice, uh, recites his sins, and they're transferred to the, that innocent animal, young innocent animal, and then the animal is killed because of the sins of the person uh, bringing it. And we talked again about the preposition peri, which I talked about just a minute ago. And then under point F, I talked about how this is seen in numerous uh, phrases in Isaiah 53. 
that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. It's very clear this is depicting substitution. He is taking upon himself the punishment for somebody else. And this is talking about the Messiah. And then Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. And we talked about that verb, to go astray, wandering in our study of, of um, uh, I get all my Psalms mixed up now. I think that was in Psalm uh, 107 that we looked at last uh, Sunday morning. So the, the she, this is wandering astray in error. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the New Testament, it's expressed in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Once again, that idea of substitution. And then the uh, point number I, setting you up for what we're going to cover tonight in 1 John 2.2, This is the closest we get to the concept of atonement in the Old Testament, and that is he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And that word, the Greek word translated there, is also connected to the word mercy seat in the Greek that's used in Romans, and the mercy seat is the focal point of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Okay, so propitiation is a word, but it's not limited to propitiation, as we'll see. So what we have is basically two issues that we have to answer when we talk about atonement. What do we mean when we talk about atonement? And the first is, what is the nature of the atonement? And the positive answer is the nature is substitutionary. It is substitutionary. And so we're moving to the next section, the second point, which is going to talk about the nature of the atonement. It is substitutionary. And I made the uh, observation at the end of the last class that it basically took uh, a, a thousand years before the church got it right in articulating the substitutionary doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have a somewhat elementary or basic concept of substitution. It it was there here and there for a thousand years, but nobody sat down and really analyzed it and articulated it. The closest they got, and he still had problems, was Anselm in 1000. We'll look at that in a minute. Around 1000 to um, uh, about halfway through, I, I don't, yeah, yeah, about halfway through that century, about 1050, he articulates a doctrine that is very close. It's the closest they got until the Reformation. So if you really want to understand substitutionary atonement, you you can't get it in the early church fathers or even in the um, theologians of the medieval period. You have to go to the uh, to the Reformation. So that's really where we're gonna where we're gonna focus. Uh, but that shouldn't surprise us because when we study church history, you see that other doctrines such as scripture the development of the canon. They don't really nail down a canon until somewhere in the mid-4th century, around 350. 
Well, didn't they have a canon before that? Yes, they did. We have examples from about like 160 of a fragment of a document that's called the Muratorian Canon. And that had about, I, I can't remember exactly, but it's close to about maybe 18 or 20 New Testament books. I'm not exactly sure what that number is. It's not all 27, but it's a good bit of them. So they already recognize, and it doesn't include anything that it's not in our New Testament. It's not like, well, they've got the Gospel of uh, Papias or they've got the Epistle of Barnabas or uh, some of the Gnostic Gospels in there. They, what they have are part of our New Testament. They just, it, it's just a fragment. It doesn't have everything. And by the middle of the second century, 250, they're getting pretty close. The questions they had wasn't about books that aren't in the canon now. The questions they have are, well, what about Jude? That was written by one person. It's short. Not, not everybody knew about it. What about Hebrews? We don't know who wrote it. Should we really include that in the canon? And some people say, well, what about Revelation? There's this curse in there that if you don't interpret it rightly, you're going to come under God's judgment. So that's pretty pretty serious. Maybe we don't want to include that. So they had these kinds of debates. Uh, the epistle to Philemon, that's written to an individual. It, didn't ha it wasn't passed around like the uh, epistles to the Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians as those were passed around. So they had, it took them, uh, after the end of the apostolic period, it took them uh, 250 years to figure that out. Same thing with the Trinity and the hypostatic union. And the nature and purpose of the Lord's table was debated until you get into the early years of the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther had a view of consubstantiation, which sounds suspiciously like transubstantiation, but it's not. And then you had uh, Zwingli's view, which is the memorial view that we hold. Calvin had a slightly different view. And so uh, they're still debating that into the, into the late 1500s. So it wasn't like they figured this stuff out. We stand on the shoulders of, of five or six people, five or six levels up, and we think, oh, I can tell you what the Trinity is just like that. I can explain the hypostatic union just like that. If you talk to a leading theologian in the fourth century, they wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. They didn't have the vocabulary for it yet. And so when we come to studying the atonement, it, it's not any different. They talked about substitution, but they didn't take it out and analyze it. They, were, they would say, well, Jesus died for our sins, which is just quoting scripture. But nobody's asking, well, in what sense did he die for our sins? That little preposition can have other meanings, maybe. What exactly does that mean that he died for our sins? Now, in the Old Testament, they clearly understood the concept of substitution in the picture of the, of the uh, sacrifices, but it wasn't developed. It's not theologically analyzed. It's just the words are repeated in a rather uh, simple manner. And so it took years for people to really think through what that meant. And when you say Jesus died for us, he paid a penalty Oh, to whom did he pay it? Did he pay it to Satan? Did he pay it to the universe? 
Did he pay it to God? To whom did he pay it? In the early church, the dominant view that nobody holds anymore, but dominant view for about the first three or 400 years is that Jesus paid a ransom to Satan to free everybody. That's the, that, that's the most popular view. So um, we need to understand some of these things as we go, go through this. Other views came along. Uh, Jesus died for us. Well, he, he gave us an example of how to live. And he's showing us that we should die for what we believe in. And uh, Jesus died to, to just to generally satisfy uh, God's government or to show that God doesn't like sin. And that's a different view. And so these are views that came along. So we have several ideas that we find in the early church. So we'll just summarize these under six points. First of all, the idea that the t- atonement was penal. It is a penalty that in their writings, it's either paid to Satan as a ransom, or there's a few who understand that it has something to do with God's justice. But they're not spelling it out. They're not really clear or articulating it. Second thing, they do have an idea in some places of a substitution, that Jesus dies in the place of sinners, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, especially in the epistle to Diognetus. This was written about 180. So this is 100 years or so after John dies, about 90 years after John died, 85 years, something like that. So he writes, I've got a lengthy quote here, but I'm just going to read the core part of it, talking about God's view towards sinners. He says, he hated us not, neither rejected us, nor bore us malice, but was long-suffering and patient, and in pity for us took upon himself our sins, and himself parted with his son as a ransom for us, the holy for the lawless, the guileless for the evil, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal, For what else but his righteousness would have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us lawless and ungodly men to have been justified, save only in the Son of God? Oh, the sweet exchange, the inscrutable creation. Hear that word exchange? He's he's really captured it, but he doesn't develop it any more than than just, just skimming the surface here. So that shows us that these ideas were there. Athanasius comes along about 150 years later and says something very, very similar. But this is not the norm at all to, to get there. They understand, uh, some of them do anyway, that the work is directed to the Father. But for the most part, up through the around 300 to 350, they're still thinking uh, even... Uh, uh, Augustine held to a ransom to Satan view. How many people read Augustine today? Lots of people. Okay, so they still pick up on those kinds of ideas. It's in the uh, mid to late, late, actually late first century, mid to late first century, that Tertullian introduces the concept of satisfaction. He uses the the, the word, but he doesn't explain it. Okay, that's what I mean by unanalyzed. They're using language that communicates something, but they don't talk about or explain how is God satisfied. 
In what way does that work? They're not explaining that. Most of you can do that. Uh, Irenaeus, also mid, mid-second century, Tertullian's mid-second century. Uh, Irenaeus, recapitulation view. He has it as a, pun- a punishment. It's penal, and it's somewhat substitutionary but not, not in the full sense that you and I would think about it. So, sixth, we see that this understanding of the atonement is, like much in the early church, held simply, but it's not analyzed or thought through. And there's a lot to think about. So, what happens? With the advent of allegorical interpretation in the early third century, which impacts so much of our, of our the historical understanding of Scripture, the ideas of substitution become muddied and lost. So when I, when I say that it took a thousand years and then they only got sort of in the ballpark, they're still out in left field in some ways, it's still the Reformation, the mid to late 1500s before these ideas are clearly articulated. So I want to go through briefly some of the, um, some of the views. The first view, it's usually attributed to Origen. Now, Origen's dates are late 2nd century, around 190 or so, as I think his birth to about 250, somewhere in there. He's the first to really articulate it more. But you can go back to Clement, who's in the late first century. And Clement of Rome has a ransom to Satan view. It's unanalyzed. It's not well developed. Origen's the one who's, who develops it. And so it has the idea that, that sinners are in bondage to Satan. It uses the idea of a, of a war as the background and Satan won in the garden and so the human race is now his prisoner and so he is the one who has imprisoned us and to free the captives a ransom price has to be paid to uh, to Satan and so then they are released because of that payment because of Christ's righteousness so that's the basic idea He's got this uh, demonic, satanic element to his view of atonement. First of all, he thinks that Christ's death is a victory over demonic authorities, and that relates to his freeing the captives. Second, he does have the idea that his death is a satisfaction to God, but he doesn't play that out. So one of the things I want to point out here, historically, they're beginning to understand that part of Understanding atonement is the idea of propitiation, the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice. We'll see that as we go go through that. Um, he does have a rather superficial understanding of of substitution, but it's not developed. He uses the language, and but ultimately he sees the payment. See wh- wh- what's the What's the word we use to describe the payment price? What's that theological word? Go back to basics. What's the theological word we use in relation to the work of Christ on the cross that always has the idea of payment? The payment of what? Redemption. That's right. Redemption is always the payment of a price. So see what I pointed out here is we've got 
two corollary ideas, propitiation and redemption, are closely tied to this idea of atonement. That's what we're going to see is the word atonement really sort of covers and assumes all of the facets of Christ's work on the cross. So when we look at this, the advocates in the early church were Clement of Alexandria, Origen, also Jerome, who translated the, um, uh, the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament into Latin, and then Augustine. But by the late medieval church, it's virtually abandoned. It's hardly mentioned by anyone during the Reformation. So when you evaluate it, there's elements of truth there. The Bible does talk about the fact that we are in slavery, but not to Satan. We're in slavery to sin, Romans 6.17. It's clear that a debt is owed. We'll see that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The certificate of debt is wiped out or forgiven. We also have the idea that there is a ransom paid. It's that payment of a price. But it's not paid to Satan. It's paid to the justice of God. So, so that brings in that idea of propitiation. And then lastly, Satan uh, is not paid a ransom price by Jesus at the cross. He's judged at the cross. So you see there are many different ideas there that sound sort of right, but they're not adequate and they're not biblical. A second view that comes out in the early church is Irenaeus. Irenaeus's dates are 140 to 202. 140 to 202. So he is at the end of the second century. Uh, his dates, for example, I mentioned uh, Origen earlier. I don't have the exact dates on Origen, but Origen is around. Um, is it's late he's a late first late second century into the early third century uh, around dies i think around 250 uh, Irenaeus is a little before him they overlap a little bit and see his view is that it's also called the re- recapitulation view okay and what his view is is that Christ is going to recapitulate all the stages of man of uh, of mankind he begins innocent, free of sin. He becomes a sinner. He's punished and resurrected. But this shows that he's able to overcome where Adam was unable to overcome, and he gives eternal life to those who believe in him and trust in him. Uh, most of those who held to this view would believe that Jesus only died for the sin of Adam not for anybody else's sin. So that opens the door to something called works, doesn't it? Yes. So where he goes astray is the scripture says Jesus is the last Adam, so he's building that analogy. This is a problem with theologians is they see an analogy in scripture and then they sort of free float off into theological speculation rather than sticking with the text. He is correct in that uh, he says that Jesus was without sin But he's incorrect in that uh, the way he expresses Christ's recapitulation of of human sin. He's correct in Christ's death and resurrection and that, um, but he's incorrect in that Christ died for all sins, not just Adam's sin. 
much about uh, salvation, much about atonement, much about Christ's work on the cross is omitted, so it's clearly incomplete. He has a little bit of an idea of substitution and a little bit of an idea of propitiation and redemption, but he really doesn't develop them out very, very much. Nobody really holds to this view after three or four hundred years. The next view, there's really three views that are close to this. There's Abelard's view called the moral influence view. Then we're going to look at a view that came along that was more a little bit this, a lot the same but more liberal, and that's called the example theory. And then there's a third view that comes out after that that is an attempt to make a correction, and that's called the governmental view. Okay, now these are really important if you want to understand what's going on in evangelicalism today because you never heard of these guys, but they're, they're preached in almost, you know, in, in, in almost any kind of church that we have other than the really conservative Bible-based churches. With Abelard, Abelard's dates are 1079 to 1142. Okay, so this is a thousand years after, after um, the death of the Apostle Paul, roughly. He dies about 95 to 100. He's really reacting to Anselm's view. Anselm was, dates are just a little bit earlier, but they, they overlapped. Anselm has what they call a commercial view, but it's close to a substitutionary view. The commercial view is a transaction view. Jesus is substituting. He's paying a price. He has a lot of positive. He's the closest there is to a clear substitutionary atonement in the earlier medieval church, but he's not quite there. But Abelard rejects that. His view is uh, very, very different. He says that there's no need to satisfy any wrath against sin. There's no reason to uh, uh, satisfy God's righteousness or justice. There's no need to have any kind of an expiation for sin. What does that tell you right away? He has a high view of man and a low view of sin. He's going to have a view of man that men can still do good things. They can still do things that, that are uh, positive righteousness. And that's the problem with all three of these views, the, the um, uh, moral influence view, the example view, and the government view. And what God is doing is he's showing how much he loves us at the cross. It's a it is a demonstration of God's love, but, the, but what is happening on the cross is not, to, um, it's, it's not about bringing us just to God's love. What's happening on the cross, it demonstrates God's love, but he is, because he is paying the penalty for us. So he just completely excludes anything related to uh, satisfying God's righteousness or justice. His idea is that God demonstrates his love in a way that sinners' hearts are going to be softened, and then they will turn to him uh, because of how good God is to them. It's emotional. Now, 
do you hear echoes of that in a lot of the way revivalists preach the gospel? It's certainly true of Finney. Now, Finney didn't hold to this view. He held to the governmental view. But this idea runs in all three of these views is that basically man is capable of doing good things. He's perfectible. He just needs a little a little encouragement, a little motivation to turn to God because they've got this low view of sin and a high view of human ability. And so this is the first stab at it, Abelard. He's followed by a number of uh, modern liberals, uh, Horace Bushnell from the early 19th century, and then two, uh, then several big names in the rise of 19th century Protestant liberalism like Albert Ritchell and some others. And it's true that the cross demonstrates the love of God, Romans 5.8. It's true that God wants sinners to turn to him. We could talk about Second uh, Peter 3.9, some other passages. But this view sees the basis for Christ's death to be God's love rather than his righteousness and justice. That, that the need for the death of Christ is, is, is the righteousness and justice of God needs to be satisfied, and it totally ignores that. And it is also based on moving people emotionally, that the reason you don't come to God is you don't realize he loves you. Now, I want you to think about what I just said. How many times do you pick up on that idea, that emphasis of on God's love in a lot of churches today, these big evangelical churches. Now, their doctrinal statement may emphasize substitutionary atonement, but what happens is the way they are approaching the gospel and your need to come to church is because you need to understand it's all about God's love to the exclusion of his righteousness and his justice. And so practically... They're, they're influenced by this idea, even though on their doctrinal statement, they're going to say, we believe in substitutionary atonement. It's just words. A lot of these guys don't have enough theological training to understand these distinctions. So that's the, that's, that's the moral influence view. It's based on motivating people to turn to God because of his love without realizing what Christ did as a substitute on the cross to pay for sin. So it's a denial of substitution and an emphasis on on love. The next view that's similar but different, much more liberal, is called the example theory. It's called the example theory. So what we've looked at, let me back up just so you can review it a little bit. The first one we looked at was the ransom to Satan view, the second one was Irenaeus's recapitulation view. The third one was Abelard's moral influence view. And this is from, uh, it's called uh, the example theory, and it was developed by a, a man and his nephew. What happened there? Okay. Somebody turned my power off because my batteries, no, that's not it. It just, something just quit. Usually this happens when something quits. Okay, we're back. All right. This is what came out of something called Socinianism. Y'all all all know what Socinianism is, don't you? I remember the first time I was reading through Chafer's Systematic Theology, and he's talking about Socinianism like I'm supposed to understand what that is. 
shows our lack of education. So Sini, there were two two guys. Their name was Sozini. They were Italians. They were from Florence. Okay, who knew? They were the fa- really the founders of Unitarianism. What? You know what it is. It, you know, Sozinism. Yeah, it's Sozini. So there's Lelio Sozini and his nephew Fausto, and they live in the late mid to late 1500s. That both one dies in 1562. The nephew Fausto, who's the real organizer of it, dies in 1604. And it, it's very radical. It denies a lot of the authority of Scripture. I said, I made a mistake. I said Florence. They're from Siena, close by. Knew they were from Tuscany. They're from Siena, and they develop this idea that again, it's it's all about God's love. And their doctrines, their ideas become very influential in a radical Protestant group called the Polish Brethren or the Minor Reformed Church of Poland. Y'all all heard of that, right? That's why this stuff is obscure, but you know, you go down here to this Unity Church down here off of, off of uh, Hillcroft, and they trace their theological roots right back to Fausto Socinius, Sozini. And you go to any of these Unitarian churches and, and you run into anybody who doesn't believe in the Trinity and they, and, and they want to hold to some form of Christianity, this is their great-great-granddaddy. And so this is their idea. And again, it has the idea that, that Christ did not t- need to satisfy God's justice per se. His death is an example of faith and obedience. It shows us that if we're committed to what we believe in to the point where we're willing to die for it, then we too can have eternal life. He's giving us an example not only of how to die, but also how to live. So it has nothing to do with punishment. It has nothing to do with sin. It has everything to do with human ability. Jesus is viewed as just a man. He's Unitarian. There's no Trinity. So Jesus is viewed as just a man. He's not the God-man. It denies a need for sin to be punished. So it has a very high view of man's ability, a very low view of sin, and a low view of God's righteousness and justice. It fails to see any relationship between the sinner's sin and Christ's death. He just died to give you an example. It has nothing to do with your sin whatsoever. And I heard years ago that at a couple of these churches where they had singles groups that they were the place to go if it it was more exciting to go there than it was to go to a local bar because they had no moral values whatsoever because if you don't believe in sin then anything's okay so and all works itself out in our culture. We're living in an age of such moral relativism. I was talking to Bob Guerra the other day, and I, and, and I said, you know, where this has come, because he's telling me what's going on in courts today, that we've gone from moral relativism to legal relativism. It doesn't matter what the Constitution or the law says. Uh, that's what they thought. Let's, let's fudge a little. It's all relative, and it makes perfect sense. So... There's no sin for Jesus to die for, so he's just giving us an example of how to live. 
Then the third form of this is called the governmental view, and of course it's put forth by a lawyer by the name of Hugo Grotius, who is actually, he, his dates are 1583 to 1645, and in the early 1600s he's considered one of the greatest jurists in England. Okay, but he has a liberal theology. But he tries to bring things back from the brink, from Socinianism and even Abelard, and to try to get somewhere close to um, a substitutionary idea. So he has a low view of sin, once again, and a high view of man. And he thinks that God will forgive sin, so at least he has a view that God needs to forgive sin. But there doesn't need to be an equivalent penalty. There needs to be a payment it's a token payment to show that it really upsets God that man has sinned. So God has to uphold his principle of government by exacting a token penalty for sin through Christ's death. And when Christ dies, Jesus, I mean, God accepts that token payment and sets aside the requirement of the law. And so God really has said the penalty is death, but wait a minute, because Jesus died, I'll, I'll back off of that and I'll, I'll change. The, the, the penalty. So God's will becomes somewhat arbitrary. It has this high view of man that man is able, man's perfectible, and that that it's it's not a substitutionary atonement. Jesus isn't paying your penalty. You can handle that yourself because you're basically good. Now, that's an important idea historically. It's an, it influences Daniel Whitby. Daniel Whitby is the father of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, post-millennialism basically at, at this point, and as in its liberal manifestation in the 19th century, builds off of this. If man is not a totally corrupt, totally depraved sinner, then he's perfectible on his own. If you as an individual are perfectible, then y'all as a group are perfectible, and we can together bring in the kingdom and the millennium. And this was very much the part of a thinking of an 19th, early 19th century evangelist by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Now, some of you may have heard Finney's name. Finney founded Oberlin College. Sally went up there for a little while to Oberlin Conservatory of, uh, of Music. So did Lewis Berry Chafer. But Oberlin was the seed, the root of the abolitionist theology uh, before the American uh, war between the states. It came, it's a radical movement, but it's all based on this governmental theory of the atonement, that man is perfectible and we can improve ourselves and we can perfect the country. We just have to get rid of these five big sins. And if we can get rid of slavery and if we can get women equality, if we can get rid of child labor, if we can get rid to, uh, uh, of liquor, and I think there was a fifth one. If you can get rid of these things, we'll have perfected society. It's all about works. And this is why the Second, uh, um, second Great Awakening is so fraudulent as an awakening. The First Great Awakening in the 1740s was about coming to terms with God's grace at the cross. But the Second Great Awakening, the major evangelists, there are many others, some were right, but most of them were not. They're like Finney. Finney doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement, and he's a post-millennialist. He doesn't believe in eternal security, and yet you will hear people tout him as a great theologian. I remember one time, many, many years ago, 
when Dave Hunt was visiting with me in Dallas. And some of you know who Dave Hunt was. He's very active, wrote a great book, Seduction of Christianity, very active at pre-trib. Tommy was up there, and they got into a discussion on Finney because Dave had come out of this kind of a, a little bit of a holiness background, a brethren movement somewhere along the line. He had gotten turned on to Finney, and Tommy really set him straight. And Dave Hunt just did, turned on a dime against Finney once he learned his theology. But you don't get people talk about these things. So um, that's important to understand. These three ideas are either overtly or covertly dominating America, most of American evangelicalism today because it makes man feel good. He is capable of doing something to please and impress God. And then the last view is the view of Anselm. And Anselm writes a book called Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man? And it is a foundational theological book and talking about the importance of the hypostatic union and in that he works it out in terms of this substitutionary idea. It's sometimes called the commercial theory. His dates are just a little bit earlier uh, than the dates of uh, Abelard. Abelard was born in 1079. Uh, Anselm is about uh, 45 years older. He was born in 1033 lives to 1109, and he understands some basic concepts. He understands that that Christ restored humanity uh, to humanity what was lost through Adam's sin, that that's what he's giving him. He has this idea of righteousness. The idea of imputation is on the edges. He viewed the essence of Christ's work to be substitutionary but he doesn't really fully develop that out. He understands that the judgment of the cross is judicial in nature, that God's righteousness and justice have to be satisfied uh, or there will be eternal condemnation. He writes in odd terms, though. He thinks of God's righteousness and justice as his honor, so he thinks sin robbed God of his honor. Christ's death satisfies God's honor. It is a substitutionary transaction. So in many ways, it's the most complete view of the atonement in the period before the Reformation. And while it's true that sin involves not giving God honor and glory, it is much more than that. And so he has this idea that the atonement is, at its very core, has to do with satisfying the righteousness and justice of God, and that the atonement is a penalty. It is punitive. And so generally the Anselmic view influenced classic reformed. I'm talking about 17th century, 16th, 17th century Lutherans, Calvinists, Arminians, Wesleyans, and Amaraldians. I'm not talking about 20th century here because you've got all kinds of splits in denominations now because of the influence of liberalism. The Abelardian view influences Socinians, and Unitarians and religious liberals. That's going to be where they're, where they're coming from. So, and here's another chart. We'll take a lot of time looking at this. But what we see here is that uh, among Anselm and the Reformers, the atonement's necessary. Arminians, too, it's necessary. And Arminians and Calvinists, uh, Reformers, it's a substitutionary penalty. But with Arminianism, it only deals with past sin. Because you may commit a sin in the future, you'll lose your salvation. So it really doesn't deal with future sin. Uh, 
So only that the view of substitutionary atonement that comes out of the Reformation is important. But then you have to answer, ask the question, well, what's the extent of the atonement? Is it only for the elect or is it for everyone? And we'll get into that a little later. So second part. Remember the first part I asked the question, what is substitution? So we talked about the biblical view of substitutionary atonement, satisfying God's righteousness and justice. And then these are the wrong views that I've spent the evening on. And then the second issue, after we've asked the question, what is substitutionary, what does it mean for atonement? And the basic idea that we've often heard is that the idea of this word kafar is to cover or to make atonement. But essentially, the second line is better. It means to cleanse, to wipe clean, to, and it has a heavy emphasis on forgiveness. A number of years ago, I read through Randy Price's book, The Coming Last Day's Temple, which is about 750 pages. Probably with a little tongue-in-cheek, John Walver, the president of Dallas Seminary, who was still alive at the time, wrote the foreword, and he says that this is probably the most extensive book on the temple that anyone ever thought of writing or dreamed of writing. Randy never left a molecule unturned. But the value of that is the amount of research that he brings and the information that he brings. And this was the first time that I had come to realize that from the time I had been in seminary in the 90s until this time, that there was a huge discussion that it was taking place among uh, language scholars on the exact meaning of the word kafar. Uh, typically, you'll find uh, dictionaries that just define it as atonement. But atonement is a made-up word. It, it came from the idea that people who were opposed to one another would be brought together and made at one. So it was an English made-up word called at-one-ment. Now, the, the idea that comes together, uh, comes in your mind with that, is the idea of reconciliation. So what have we seen so far? We've seen the idea of, of redemption, the ransom idea, is present when you talk about atonement. We see the idea of propitiation or satisfaction as part of that. We see from some other passages the idea of cleansing, that, that whole thing of forgiveness that's present on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about uh, as we go through this study, the importance of, of that forgiveness that's pictured on the Day of Atonement as it's described in, in uh, Leviticus is that uh, first a bull is sacrificed for the, for the uh, high priest, so he's cleansed. And then there's two goats that are brought in. One is sacrificed and his blood is put on the altar. The other has the sins of the nation placed upon him. The high priest recites their sins on the head of the goat. And then that goat is taken out into the wilderness far, far away where he can never wander back. And so it's a picture of the uh, mercy of God, forgiving sin that's on the mercy seat. And then the removal and complete removal and, uh, of that sin, God removes it and forgets it. And that's the pictured by the goat taking it off into the wilderness. 
So these are the ideas that are that are present so far. So it's a multifaceted, uh, multifaceted idea. So as I begin to look at different studies, I realize that that if you look at older uh, Hebrew dictionaries, uh, then you find the emphasis on this idea of covering, and you can see that idea where they uh, got that from both the use in Genesis as well as putting the blood on the mercy seat and inside are the broken tablets. It covers the sin. That, that preaches well. It's a nice image. But if you look at what you find in the way the rabbis translated uh, uh, kafar into the, uh, into the Septuagint, not every time, but many, many times, they use the word katharizo, which means to cleanse. And it brings in the whole idea of, of forgiveness. That's what I have on this slide, the meanings I talked about earlier. And this is from CHL. That's the classic Hebrew lexicon. There's only six volumes out now, uh, which I got in Lagos, fortunately, at a discount price. It's extremely expensive. And it lists these as definitions, atone, make expiation for you. Remember hearing about that? I can't remember too many sermons on expiation, but I remember hearing about the barrier when I was a kid, and the barrier, expiation, it's another word for forgiveness. It means to cancel a debt, but it's not a word we use a lot anymore. Even I don't read it much even among theologians. It was used in the King James translation, so that made it a usable word. It, it, it means to make amends for something, to free something from sin, to purify it, to effect a ransom for something. That's that idea of redemption. So we have forgiveness up here or in expiation. We have redemption here in ransom. Uh, we have God as a subject. Sometimes it has the idea of forgiving sin. It's translated katharismos, uh, which means uh, in the Septuagint that atonement, this is the noun form, the verb is katharizo. Uh, the noun form katharismos means to uh, purification or to purge or to clean. Now that makes a lot more sense with the visual imagery of the Day of the Atonement. Um, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the older lexicon, says perhaps it means to cover but it's primarily related to the Arabic cognate for wiping clean. Arabic and Akkadian are Semitic languages like Hebrew that are very close. So sometimes if you don't really know what a word means in Hebrew, you go look at its cognate in Arabic and Akkadian and see what, what that means there, and that gives you clues. So that's just typical word study methodology that any pastor ought to be able to do if he's worth his salt. So this is the idea that we have here. It is depicted on the Day of Atonement when the blood of the sacrifice is placed on the mercy seat. This is the mercy seat inside the box. That's the ark. That's what ark means inside the box. You have the covenant, the testimony of the law, the broken tablets. Uh, outside, I believe, is where they placed Aaron's rod that budded and the manna. But uh, some people say it was inside the box, but it was probably outside the box based on some passages. And then the blood is placed here, and you have two angels, or cherubs, actually looking down, and they are uh, looking at the blood 
and they represent because they're cherubs who are always associated in scripture with the holiness of god they represent the satisfaction of god's righteousness and his his justice and so this is what happens uh, as the old testament depiction it's substitutionary and it's related to satisfaction which is why the the Greek word hilaskerion, which is translated propitiation, which means satisfaction, is used to translate kaphoret. Hear, hear the kafar there? It just adds a T, kaphoret. That's the noun for the mercy seat uh, in Hebrew. So, just review. Atonement comes from the English phrase at one minute and emphasizes reconciliation, another broad category term for the what the work of Christ on the cross. Second, the blood sacrifice relates to the payment of a price. That's the idea of redemption. Third, the mercy seat relates to the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice. That's propitiation. So fourth, because God is propitiated and the penalty is paid, the debt of sin is canceled. That's expiation and forgiveness. Look at those ideas that are present there. I want to come back and talk. I'm going to skip this just a minute and put this slide up. Come back and review it when I come back. See, this is the many facets of atonement. You have redemption, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, forgiveness. What does atonement mean? It it's all of these ideas are, are part of the meaning of this word when you look at how it goes through. So it's substitutionary. Christ paid the penalty for sin so that our sins are completely wiped out. They are cleansed. We'll come back and look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14. The debt has been canceled at the cross, not when you believe, but at the cross. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be re reminded of these important doctrines, rehearse the history, understand how uh, these ideas were finally understood throughout the history of Christianity and come to understand that your righteousness and justice is satisfied. There's no reason for us to feel guilty about our sins because that guilt, the true legal guilt, has been transferred to Christ on the cross where he paid the penalty and we have the price paid and we have forgiveness of sin. And so no matter what sins may be out there, no matter what sins may be in our past, they have all been paid for. There's no sin that's too great for the grace of God, no sin that wasn't known by your omniscience in eternity past, but all sin has been paid for at the cross. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this, think it through, make it part of our, of our soul and our thinking. In Christ's name, amen.